Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone and welcome back to TVP. This week we are joined by Josh Wolf, the co-founder of Lux Capital and one of the most successful venture capitalists of the last generation. Josh couldn't be more different than the value team because he invests in cutting edge technology and things that may not even exist in five or 10 years down the line. Even though what he invests is in high contrast to the value team, we found that he had a similar mindset, especially in how he applies probabilistic thinking to his craft and how he utilizes behavioral science. We also greatly enjoy his mantra, believe before others understand. Now, before we crack into this episode, we'd like to give a quick thank you to our colleague, Jack Dempsey. He was supposed to co-host this episode, but got pulled away last minute, but he did do an immense amount of help with the prep. So for that, we say thank you so much, Jack. In this episode, Juan and Josh will cover pitching without previous track record or experience as a venture capitalist and the importance of experience, how to deal with information anxiety, the mindset of a value investor in a VC world, using nuclear as an example of something with low acceptability and beliefs and narratives, the privileges and challenges of co-investing with Bill Gates, and finally, why we are making such small incremental progress in the defense industry and the usefulness of risk gaming. Enjoy. Josh Wolf, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to see you. Where do we find you today? Uh, we are on a vacation for the weekend. So we are way out of New York City where we're normally based. Oh, thank you very much for interrupting your holidays to talk to us. My pleasure. Josh, for those that don't know who you are, could you give us a little bit of your background? I, I'm the founder, a co-founder of a venture fund, Lux Capital. Uh, we're about 40 people between New York and Menlo Park. And we're a little over $5 billion under management. And we do everything from super early stage investments and spin-outs of universities to later stage corporate spin-outs and all kinds of special situations. And the stuff that we fund ranges from cutting-edge biotechnology based on Nobel Prize-winning scientists to aerospace and defense and really speculative near science fiction that becomes science fact. You will correct me if I'm wrong, but you started your career working in investment banking and if i have it right specifically doing research so how does one go from investment banking into the world of venture capital well i don't know that there was a linear path i was in investment banking i was actually in a real estate and lodging group so uh, we were focused primarily on hotels and mobile homes and 
it really was not that interesting to me. I was obsessed with biotechnology and science and technology and the future. And most technology at that time was really focused on the dot-coms. So this was, you know, nearly 23 years ago, 22 years ago, and everybody was focused on uh, optical networking on the infrastructure side, and then all of the dot-coms and search engines. Uh, nobody was really focused on the physical and material sciences. And so after about nine months in my job, right out of college, I went to Cornell as an investment banking analyst, not even smart enough to collect my first year bonus, myself and my co-founder, Peter Hebert, who was at Lehman Brothers in equity research. We decided that we were going to start a firm. And with the help of friends and some others, uh, we went out to try to raise friends and family money. And I always joke that we both had a lot of friends. We had a lot of family, but none of us had any money. Uh, and none of the family and friends had money. And we got very lucky and met a guy, Bill Conway. And Bill had money. He was one of the founders of the Carlisle Group. He, um, uh, at the time, I want to say Carlisle was low single digit billions, which was still extraordinary. Today, hundreds of billions and one of the most successful private equity firms in history. And we had a chance meeting with Bill and we pitched this idea that every 10 or 15 years, there's a secular wave that defines technology and a handful of people that dominate that wave, either by virtue of domain expertise or luck. We had studied some of these waves in the past. In the 1970s, in venture capital was mostly around PCs, the personal computer movement. And you had companies like Compaq and Atair. And, uh, and then in the 80s, uh, you had biotechnology. And then in the 90s, you had the internet. And our hypothesis was that the next wave would be about the physical and material sciences. And so that's, that's what we carved out as a niche. It served us very well. This is a podcast that has aimed to explore the topic of decision-making under uncertainty. And we're very much interested in your early years before and just after starting luck. And those key first decisions, what was skill and what was luck? You know, I'm a big believer in Michael Mobison's uh, spectrum on skill and luck. And he's got a great test if something is skill or something is luck which is, can you fail on purpose? And if you take something like dental surgery, the answer is surely yes. If you take something like running in a foot race, the answer is surely yes. If you take something like uh, blackjack or roulette, the answer is no. You might intentionally try to fail and you might get lucky and hit 21 or you know, uh, you know, know, throw craps and get sevens or you know, land on red 28 or whatever it is. Um, in, in venture, there's a great mix of both. You know, you have to have some skill to navigate towards things that are going to make you lucky. And I, I very much consider it like if you had a fishing rod, you know, if you go out into the ocean, uh, you might be a skilled fisherman, but you got to be really lucky to try to catch something. If you go to a pond where there's thousands of fish, your odds of being able to catch something are much higher. So you really have to be selective about where you're going to try to apply your skill so that you can get lucky. And I think that if you can strain some of those external parameters that you have no control over, which is an active skill, then you have a better chance of being lucky and a better chance of a good outcome. But in those first days when you are meeting the founder of the Cardinal Group, what was the conversation like? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but you had never done venture capital before. Uh, you didn't have a track record, which almost always is a requisite when you are raising funding. That's absolutely right. Uh, that was entirely lucky. Uh, being introduced to Bill was an act of good fortune. The circumstances of Bill's mindset in the preceding day, if you read somebody like Robert Sapolsky, who would talk through 
the biochemistry of the moment or the day or the week or the month, there were any number of forces that might have been acting on Bill's mindset. He might've just had a great meal right before we met him down in his Washington DC office. He might've just gotten great news. He might've had a great evening the night before with his family that primed him to be in a good mood. Conversely, if you ran the counterfactual, he might've just gotten terrible news. He might've been annoyed. He might've been distracted. And then here comes these young 20 something year old kids that are basically like, we want to go and build a great venture firm and focus on these areas that nobody else is focused on. And he might've been like, that's wonderful. You know, I hope you have a great life and good luck, but I, I just, I'm not your guy. So the circumstances of that day, which I can never understand the totality of, you know, what went into Bill's mood and mindset, he was primed to say yes. Now, if we walked in and we knew nothing about what we were talking about, he probably would have been inclined to say no, but we came in with, I think, a versed expertise and understanding of history of venture capital and why these particular areas that we were focused on, that at the time very few people were focused on, were likely to become the next big wave in venture. And he was able to make a small bet on people with big dreams. I think he appreciated our entrepreneurial naivete. And he said, I hope to make a billion. And, and it was one of the luckiest days of my life. So I call that, you know, very lucky day. Sometimes when you are starting something when where you don't have that much experience, it's very easy at the beginning to make some mistakes. How were the first few years in terms of building up that experience and knowledge and track record and, and just like stumbling around along the way? You know, most experience is gained by one of two things. You're either doing and you learn and you develop a set of pattern recognition or you read voraciously and you observe. You observe both the success of people and try to emulate it or copy it, or you observe the failures and try to avoid it and, and stay away from making those same mistakes. Um, but the landscape is constantly changing. You know, The capital market environment when we started had just gone from a major boom in the dot-com to a massive bust. Um, we were investing in an area of advanced materials and emerging technology that didn't have a lot of people chasing it yet. So the financing risk of the companies was very high. Nobody had funded these companies. I think I was inspired by a quote that I'd heard from a friend who was friends with George Gilder. Now, George was um, a bit of a promoter of the telecommunications boom. He's a brilliant, brilliant man with lots of interesting theories on technology and how they coincide with physics and entropy. And I, I admire many things about him. And we actually emulated George in producing a newsletter that we did with Forbes, which helped to build our brand, our name, get us access, get us entree, appeal to the ego and the vanity of the scientists and the CEOs that we were trying to court because they didn't know who Josh Wolf or Lux Capital were, but they wanted their name in Forbes. Um, but one of the things that George said was experience is massively overrated. And when you really look at the great entrepreneurs, not the great value investors, but the great entrepreneurs, they really are people who have done things that others hadn't done before. You know, nobody had done what Steve Jobs had done before, and Steve had no experience doing what Steve Jobs did. Um, nobody had done what Mark Zuckerberg did. Nobody had done what Larry Ellison had done. Nobody had done what Elon Musk had done. And I'm critical about many of those folks for different reasons, but there often is you know, no precedent for some of the things that people do. There were no biotech entrepreneurs 
before the founders of Genentech that did what they did. Often it's somebody stumbles on a discovery or somebody stumbles on a discovery and is paired with somebody that has the vision or the greed and avarice that they want to see it get to market. But whatever those circumstances are, I actually do think that experience is, is very overrated in new things because by definition, nobody's done that thing yet. And so people should just have the confidence to say, I'm going to go and do it. It's almost like if you were a scientist and you're trying to push the boundaries of a field or you're an explorer, you know, what experience, you know, did anybody that made a great discovery have before? They, they had some instinct. Um, they might've had some skills or some tactics. They might've had some resources, but then they just went and did. And then history remembers the one out of the hundred that succeeded and we forget or attribute to failure the 99 you know that didn't and so there's the survivorship bias of the people who did it but but everybody that tried it had no experience doing whatever they were doing so it's really interesting you are investing at the cutting edge and one thing a lot of younger investors struggle with is knowing when you know enough to make a decision how do you deal personally and as a team with the concept of information anxiety well, there's, there's two aspects of information anxiety. One is born in a competitive pursuit. And the other is the sense of discomfort that you have when you just don't know what the possibility space is. So in the first case, I consider myself to have information anxiety because if I find out that somebody else knows something that I don't know, or another firm has knowledge that we don't, I consider that a sort of failure of process. And I, I think I'm driven competitively to know what other people know and then know a little bit more or to know what they know, but to analyze it slightly different and have a differing perception, a variant perception. So that's one form of information anxiety, which is never resting on our laurels, never sitting back and thinking that we know something. And that's evident in the kinds of stuff that we find. You say cutting edge, you know, the image of cutting edge is that you're really on the precipice and you might lead into a pot of gold or leap into a pot of gold, or you might cut yourself fatally and you know lose all your money. A lot of these fields, we don't know anything about them. You know, It really is an instinct around something. And then you meet the entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs are often so competitively obsessive and often have a chip on their shoulder. I like to say that chips on shoulders put chips in pockets but there's something that is driving them to prove other people wrong. And again, I, I really love to study great scientists. And whether you look at Peter Mitchell, who came up with the chemoosmotic hypothesis that ultimately won him the Nobel Prize, or Lynn Margulis, who came up with the endosymbiotic theory of archaea, a form of bacteria that basically got hostily taken over by mitochondria. Those two examples in biochemistry or cellular biology are the same thing that entrepreneurs experience, which is everybody thought those two scientists were wrong. And not only were they wrong, they laughed at them. They made fun of them. And the history of almost every scientific discovery that is spectacular is that they were spectacular targets of people's derision and ire. And, and then they were right. Well, entrepreneurs are the same thing. Somebody goes and does something, often with the arrogance of the highest order, and they say, this is the way that the world should look. And this is the way that I want to shape it. And people think that person's an idiot. That'll never work. And the more people that say that for us, it's a good thing because 
if everybody agreed it was going to work, then the provision of capital would be very high, valuations would be very high, because the demand to fund these people would be very high, and then future returns would be very low. So we actually want lots of skepticism and lots of doubts from everybody else. We want everybody else to agree with us ultimately, just later and not now. And so we like to say in a poetic, cheesy way that we believe before others understand. And in a sense, it's a little bit of a leap of faith in the entrepreneur. But that's the second kind of information anxiety, which is we don't know. Um, now, the way that we control that is you try to do as much research as you can. If it's a scientific breakthrough, it's relatively easy to know if somebody is full of shit or if they're real because you have peer-reviewed science. You have people that are um, competitively motivated to disprove them. Um, you have institutional error correction in the form of both institutes of science and national academies. And so, so there's some corrective mechanisms, which is why if somebody comes up with some breakthrough in quantum physics or quantum computing or you know, fusion, uh, all of which are areas I'm very skeptical of uh, because of uh, lots of BS there. But uh, if they're unaffiliated with a great institution, you generally are more skeptical. And you're more skeptical because the error correction mechanisms at great institutions is very high. And so we're constantly looking for brilliant entrepreneurs, engineers, and scientists who are on, as you noted, the cutting edge. Then we'll say, okay, how much money accomplishes what in what period of time and who will care? And that's really the simplicity of it. It's not us modeling. It's no secret math computers, you know, supercomputers that are running numbers and spitting out some answer. It's an assessment of the cards that are on the table. And they say, you know, we think it's going to cost us $6 million and a year and a half to be able to build this prototype you know, to do this thing, whatever that is. And the variety of those things could be, we're going to launch a manufacturing module in space. We're going to develop a microscope that can see inside of cells when you introduce a drug. We're going to develop a software that has algorithms that can write proteins from genetic code that has never been done. Whatever it is, a certain amount of money in their estimation and a certain amount of time. And I always say the rule of pi if they say it's 3 million, you got to multiply that by 3.14. It's probably 10. If they say it's going to be six months, uh, you multiply that by pi, it's probably 18 months. And you give a margin of safety, a little bit more money and a little bit more time than they think. And then you turn over the next card, just like in poker. And now what I want is that a risk that we identified before we funded has been killed. And this is the way that I think about value creation. If you can kill a risk, then the next investor who feels like this is a less risky company, it's more exciting, there's more proof, should pay a higher price than we did because they are taking less risk and therefore they should demand lower reward than we did. And that's the way that I think about value inflections. Um, it's not based on a discounted cash flow. It's based on a multiple. If we paid uh, $5 million for a 25% stake into a company and it's valued at 25 million post money valuation, 20 million pre, well, maybe the next round is at 50 or 60. And, um, and because we have the ability to fully fund our companies, then there really has to be an attractive offer from a new investor at a much higher price. Otherwise we're gonna keep funding the company ourselves. So. You spent 
a lot of your time in venture capital, but you talk and you seem to think like a value investor. Is that correct? It's correct in that I think that the the only real form of investing is value investing. Um, everything else is speculation. And we are speculators betting on, you know, somebody or a dream. But I think that the only rational approach is to try to buy something for less than what it's worth. And there's a timeless, unchanging logic and rationality to some of the great investors that have been wise capital allocators. And, you know, they're not storytellers. They're, they're, they're rigorous and logical. And, and so I really respect and admire that. And whereas I look at a lot of the greats in venture capital and they've been phenomenal promoters, but I'd much rather be in the Buffett, Munger, Klarman camp of people whose intellects and emotional states I respect than the P.T. Barnum hucksters that are telling you, you know, this is going to be the next great thing. And like monorail man in the Simpsons, or frankly, like Elon Musk, that is able to get people to part with their money to buy a dream. So that's actually a, a great segue into my next question. Peter Thiel was once said that we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters. Where do you think we've gone wrong? It seems like you are the one doing it, but everyone else is chasing Web3, more advertising-based social media, more vertical SAS, SaaS, more video games. Why aren't more people doing what you are doing? I think this is an incentive, you know, as like Munger said, you know, sort of show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome and the behavior. Um, if you fund a company where the feedback period of whether it's worked or not is a month or, you know, a, a quarter or a few weeks, you know, you launch a software product or an app and you can see that it's taken off, you know, you take threads, which is the Twitter competitor that Meta just launched. I think and you just you just launched your account. Say that again. You just launched your account on Threads. Yes. Uh, yeah. At at Josh Wolf with an E at the end, uh, and I have both. You know, Wolf Josh on Twitter and at Josh Wolf now on Threads. It's an interesting experiment, but thirty million people have signed up in twenty four hours, and whether that's because they are voting with their feet or their fingers, um, you know, to leave Twitter, the perception that it became a toxic place, or they find that there's something curious or whatever it is, that's an interesting phenomenon. And the social media companies are ones that that kind of data on liftoff is very short-term. And so if you are an investor and you want to know if something works, you want to invest in things where you can get that information very readily, you know? And uh, it's sort of like, I don't know, if you were betting in sports you know, you'd want to bet on like a fast paced, high scoring game and not, you know, a soccer game or a hockey game because there's just less action uh, on the scoring. And so there's a short termism that attracts a lot of people. And if you go back to what we were discussing before, the more people that are focused on something, the more competition, the more irrational behavior you get, the more bubbles and inflated prices you get. As Buffett says, you pay a high price for a cheery consensus if everybody believes something. Well, there's this 
great set of experiments through time, whether it's Odysseus who ties himself to the mast to resist the siren song. He wants to experience the pleasure, but not be tempted by the short-term uh, consequences that would result. Uh, so he, he won't let himself steer him, the ship and his, his shipmates and his crew in, into, into the sirens. The marshmallow test, even though there's elements of that that have been debunked, the, the idea that if you focus on something that's longer term, so the reason that we don't focus on advertising, social media, is mostly because everybody else does. And if everybody else is focused there, then we just think that you get massive mispricings that are positively favorable for the entrepreneur, not for the investor. Conversely, if you focus on things where there are very few investors, which are things that are more technically complex, that fewer people understand, you immediately take some segment of the investor base that just is like, I don't understand this complex biotech thing. So you've taken out a whole group of investors. And then maybe it's something in aerospace and people say, I don't understand. You know, Now you're still going to have people that fund stuff that they don't understand because they buy the story. But that's, I think, by and large, why we like to fund these very technical things is there's just fewer competitors. So we like to go out on the limb because as the old cliche says, that's where the fruit is. And if we can have time arbitrage where if the markets generally are discounting, depending on your view of markets, six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years, we have 10-year funds. And we're able to invest for a very long time period with patient limited partners and um, and a patient partnership. Whereas if you're focused on trying to get, you know, the next big social media hit or the next big app or the next big, you know, I mean, historically, like with Web3, the board apes or whatever, you're, you're really speculating on some fad that's going to pop. And then the persistence of that is improbable, number one, and the number of people that are chasing it is just near infinite. So we like some intellectual barriers to entry that are at times sometimes a little bit arrogant sounding. Well, interesting. Splice tends to be the enemy of good returns, and Lux Capital has continued to grow and successfully has recently raised its eighth fund. As you grow, how do you think about capacity going forward so that size does not impair your future returns? You know, our fund sizes have increased. We started with a small pledge fund. We went to a $100 million fund, then $250, and so on. Our latest fund was $1.2 billion. And we made a decision that it was better to have one single fund than a early stage uh, venture fund and an opportunity fund, which is historically what we've paired. And some of that was on the incentive around decision-making and where we were putting a company and where we would stop funding it in one fund and then poured it over to another fund. And we realized that we were making imperfect suboptimal decisions in doing that. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, we can fund your first $100,000 check when you're getting started and we can fund your last $100 million check before you go public or get acquired. And so I think that that's the right size for us. We also have 10 people on the investment team. There's just under 40 people total at the firm and support and infrastructure and marketing and communications and finance and business development and platform and all kinds of stuff that support the partners and support the companies invaluably. But the investment team, if you think about that, is roughly each person is responsible for allocating if we were to do it equally, it doesn't always work that way, about $120 million. And you have five years to really do that. And so we're typically making one or two deals per partner per year. And that ends up over the course of three or four years with about 40 core positions. And a handful of those are ones that are the prime drivers of return. So you sort of look at the opportunity set 
And then you look at the team and the team's capabilities to allocate capital, the reserves that you need, the external markets, those have changed. We thought that we needed a larger fund at the current moment because the availability of the irrational marginal price setters that were giving you money at ridiculous valuations have disappeared or their participation has in fact become a uh, adverse signal and are undesirable. And so you really want to be able to fully fund the best companies and not rely on the kindness or not so kindness of strangers. So yeah, that's how we think about it. And I guess the cadence would probably be where we were fundraising, you know, every two years or so, and it would take us maybe two months or three months, you know, to go out to our investors and collect their commitments. This was about 10 weeks, which was pretty remarkable to close 1.2 billion. And we'll probably go in another two or three years and, you know, do it again. And I, and I think that's the right size for us. Congratulations on the success of, of the uh, your eighth fund and best of luck going forward. You've mentioned in the past that nuclear is was clearly on the right side when it comes to the direction arrow arrow of progress. Why is it, in your opinion, that it's not sticking or being more widely adopted? Why is the world still very much stuck on low density alternatives? The simple answer is beliefs and narratives. You know, to explain the directional arrow of progress, it's there's certain things that I feel very high conviction in, even if I don't know who the company or the entrepreneur is. One of those phenomenon that I feel very high conviction is that mankind's energy use went from low density to high density, meaning carbohydrates had very low density. Um, then you went from carbohydrates to hydrocarbons, what we know as oil and natural gas, and you crack those molecules and you release energy. And then you went to uranium and releasing the power of a chain reaction in the nuclear reaction, which I have redubbed elemental energy because I think it's a better name going back to the story and narrative piece in a moment. But the concentration and the density of energy that can be released, the potential energy in a pellet of uranium far eclipses all of the people that were doing anything in biofuels, you know, hundreds of thousands of drums of oil or natural gas for transportation that were for... Um, powering industrial plants, let alone solar or wind. Beginning in the early 2000s, when Al Gore's movie, The Inconvenient Truth, started the clean tech 1.0 movement, it was a sort of a religious movement that coincided with speculative venture funding of clean technology. Um, what was absent from that was nuclear. I got very excited about the fact that nobody was really talking about it. And that's one of the main prime drivers of why we ended up funding a company that we created because it didn't exist to go solve the nuclear waste problem. And then we got very lucky when the Fukushima disaster and Japan was very unlucky. And this was the only US company picked for that cleanup and it became a giant financial and moral success that we're very proud of in a company called Curion. Nuclear has not taken off because beginning in the seventies, you had the Three Mile Island accident in the US. You had the movie, The China Syndrome, which also talked about nuclear disaster, you had the conflation for a relatively naive population um, of nuclear power and nuclear war. Nuclear war is bad. We want to prevent nuclear war. Nuclear power is great, but you had people in the 70s that were doing concerts you know, and saying no nukes and 
it was like the post hippie movement. You had famous musicians who were then the great influencers, James Taylor and um, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, and and uh, they would do these concerts in in parks, and you know people would come, and everybody was like no nukes and the, the bumper stickers. So that really, I think, capped people's support of it. Then you had the nuclear waste issue, which is what do you do with this stuff? And we've had. 25 or 30 years of proposals to put this in Yucca Mountain, a geological repository, but Nevada says, no way, not in my backyard. And uh, and then you had Chernobyl in the 80s, which was not only a technology failure, I mean, most Soviet era technology, save for the MiG fighter jet and the AK-47, were atrocious. There's not a single product that anybody would buy from Soviet Union and consumer products, whereas Japan, conversely, was you know very competitive in that domain. But that was a systematic failure from human control and communication. And if you've seen the documentaries um, on Chernobyl, it's a great, I think, HBO series or now Max series that details really the human error that led to that. Then you had the Fukushima disaster. And that, in the one case, was a architectural or engineering disaster from a earthquake that caused a tsunami that caused um, a, uh, uh, a near meltdown. But uh, it is the cleanest, safest source of high power electricity. And I think that there is a movement in a zeitgeist that is building and it's a generational one. So I think it'll probably take another 25 to 50 years for people to wake up to it. And I suspect that China will build a lot of nuclear power plants and suddenly they will claim the mantle for having the most clean green power while we're still trying to fund, you know, windmills and solar plants, thinking that that's the be all and end all and the density and the intermittency and the battery storage is still not there yet. So 25 to 30, 25 to 30 years sounds like a very long period of time and a little bit depressing given where we stand today yeah I, I mean there's lots of things that could accelerate it you know if you start a movement if you get a great galvanizing figure if you have a another inconvenient truth like movie or series of them you know from people that that demand it but you know when you have people like Greta Thunberg that are anti-nuclear you know those are all things that throw molasses in the wheels of progress um so maybe maybe even in if in Ukraine Putin blows up the nuclear plant for whatever reason, or that blows up as an accident product of the war, then it might actually take much longer than those 30 years that you are estimating. Yep. Any, anything that, that, again, creates fear, changes people's beliefs, alters the narratives, you know, these are the most powerful engines and currencies that run humanity, the stories we tell. And so if we have good storytellers and good stories that are based on truth, in this case, that nuclear really is clean and safe, we stand a chance, but for sure, you know, front page news that creates perceptions of fear and danger will only slow it down. And unfortunately, I always say that the greatest threat to the environment are many of the people in the quote unquote environmentalist movement. Uh, I think they're actually anti-environment and they're anti-capitalism and progress, but um some of the greatest conservationists I know are giant capitalists, but you know we need to tell better stories. I used to think that Bill Gates had been a co-investor with you on the nuclear waste company, but actually that was wrong. He was a co-investor with you on a satellite company, but he is very much pro-nuclear. Is that correct? 
he's pro-nuclear and has a company called Terra Power, which is a traveling wave reactor that can take the waste that's generated from a reactor and reprocess it as fuel. And I think that's a great design and I hope it sees the day of light and it needs people like Bill that are dedicated, deep pocketed. Um, and whether it's in self-interest of wanting to make history or wanting to leave the world a better place and be celebrated, I think those are great virtues. And, and I think I, I would not bet against him on that. Uh, yes, Bill and I have uh, invested in uh, probably four or five companies on a breakthrough in physics called Metamaterials. Some of them have been in radar and satellite and other fields, but Chimeta is the one that we served on a board together in many years, developing very thin film satellite antennas, anticipating the days that have now arrived for LEO and GEO, low earth orbit and geostationary orbit, uh, to be able to have global communication. And so those antennas compete with something like Starlink, Elon has launched for his constellation. Uh, and they are partnered with folks like Intelsat and others that um, and OneWeb that have their own global constellations. So very excited about that. I think it's a, uh, a next frontier on being able to communicate wirelessly, globally, always on 24-7. And uh, the first early adopters of that, as you might expect, are the military. It must be a great pleasure to sit along and invest with someone like Bill Gates. But what is it the biggest challenge of having him as a co-investor? Well, you have the short stack at the poker table. It's uh, <laughs> you know, Bill, Bill, on the one hand, has been extraordinarily fair in our dealings. There are people far less rich than Bill that um, could have been predatory. You know, there have been times where we were investing in a company out of a fund that was running out of capital. And, you know, he could have basically raised the ante and, you know, bankrupted us, uh, so to speak, you know, at the poker table, but he's been nothing but generous and, and fair. Um, and uh, I, I admire, I admire the ethics in all the dealings we've had. So there are a bunch of times where he could have tightened the screws in a tough way. Um, and he was taking a lot more risk with a, a much larger amount of capital and he was extraordinarily fair. So yeah, I think, but the big risk is, you know, uh, if you sit down at a table with somebody that's got a lot more money, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to compete with. <laughs> um, a book, my colleague, Jack Dempsey, who very much wanted to be on today's episode uh, chatting with you, has recommended is Skunk Works by Ben Rich the successful story of the glory years of innovation of Lockheed Martin. Have you read, have you read that book? Yes. He was making the point that it was absolutely phenomenal and truly amazing what these guys did just working with a pen and paper. And so given we've got simulation software, semiconductor processing power today, why are we only making what seems like very incremental progress in the defense industry? But maybe you will correct us if we are wrong in that statement. I, I do think it is changing now, but historically it is less about the tools to design or even to manufacture. And it's more about the procurement process. You know, that is where the bottleneck is. The bottleneck is in the bureaucracy that has been built up by a handful of defense firms and lobbyists and uh, support infrastructure in Congress, where an F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is made in over 300 congressional districts. And, you know, Apple would never do that. Apple would never have the iPhone made in 300 different cities. 
And so I, I think that, again, there's incentives and there's been political capture by industry. You've had massive consolidation in the defense industry. And I think that that's changing now. You have some of our best and brightest engineers, uh, people that come from many other countries that work here now in the US and many of them are patriotic and grateful for the country that has given them the opportunity. And many of them are drawn not towards ads and crypto, but really to defense because it's a hard problem. And it was one thing a few years ago to feel that before it was obvious and evident that there are bad actors with good technology and you need better technology from better actors to be able to defeat those people or at least deter them. You're seeing it play out now in Ukraine in real time. Lots of Western technology is being tested. It's almost like a giant laboratory for people to be able to see what happens and scale it without actually directly deploying it themselves. So many of our companies have benefited from that. But also, I think there are a new generation of special operations forces, of generals, of colonels across almost every domain in warfare, um, from the Coast Guard and the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, Space Command, that are uh, wanting to adopt cutting edge technology because they don't want their women and men disadvantaged. They want them to have the best technology. And when they complain that they prefer the Palantir software system over the Booz Allen you know, software system, you know, those voices are getting louder and louder. And uh, so, so I, think, I think that that's a, a change that is probably very late in coming, but is observably evident. And I'm optimistic about that. You've clearly thought and written a lot about the concept of risk and what risk is. And actually you have recently talked about risk gaming. And I know that you have launched an invitation to people in Manhattan to join what risk gaming is. So I wanted to ask you, what is risk to you? What is risk gaming and how will it help you to think and manage risk going forward? So the initiative uh, is really, the credit is due to my colleague and partner, Danny Crichton. Danny used to run TechCrunch and now he runs all editorial and content and locks. He's a very brilliant guy, very creative, steeped in technology, history, geopolitics, policies. And it was his idea that we should run a wargaming scenario, uh, particularly around um, a key naval shipyard. Um, if there was some catastrophic weather event, would essentially cripple the Navy. And it was the identification of this as a point of vulnerability and tying in everything from climate change to geopolitics, to technology, to supply chain, to procurement, to that root of everything, which is human incentive. And we ran an experiment in New York with two different groups of six to eight folks, each assigned a role, each privately given a set of incentives and a set of resources. And it was fascinating how both groups varied in how they played the game. There's no right way to play the game, but it was the game design, which was entirely Danny, of creating incentives, conflicts, opportunities to collaborate. And these were between, in this particular scenario, um, local politicians, media, generals, uh, defense contractors, uh, nonprofit folks, local poli local politicians. Uh, so it was really fascinating set of cooperating and competing interests and conflicts and how people teamed up and what sort of outcomes it leads to. 
And that was the most interesting thing, because again, if you can understand the incentives of a politician who might want to fill their coffers or a contractor who wants to get the biggest contract that they can, or a media person who wants to expose, you know, certain information and how people can team up to either temper those incentives or um, collaborate against somebody else. Sometimes there's hidden political agendas where one person hates the other and they don't care about the national interest. They care about destroying that person. And so those kinds of things are evident in real life, not always seen. And um, Danny did a phenomenal job of creating this war gaming. And we realized that it's much bigger than just war. So we renamed it risk gaming, which was really thinking about what are the risks in different scenarios. And it's virtually endless and infinite, the number of scenarios that you can imagine. You know, you can take anything from thinking about AI's role in biotechnology and being able to generate an infinite number of viruses um, and how that might lead to global epidemics or how it might lead to global cures um, and the different parties and incentives. And you saw that playing out. I mean, who would have thought, you know, had you done a risk gaming scenario in, you know, late 2019? Uh, even before the emergence of the COVID virus, um, we forget, you know, it was 2019, COVID-19 is the name, but early 2020 is when everything sort of set off and then, my God, but, you know, nobody foresaw really the supply chain impacts, nobody foresaw the domestic disturbance and instability and politicization of something like wearing masks or getting vaccines. And so running those kinds of scenarios are valuable because I always say that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. And so if you can think about all the bad things that can happen, whether that's in a company or your own personal life or a relationship, then you can put in the time and the money and the energy and the talent and the resources to try to stave off those failure points. So that's the virtue of risk gaming. My definition of risk is the old definition, which is more things can happen than will. And that's also an act of imagination. So you go to do something, you know, I sort of, as a um, psychological comforting corrective, I'm always imagining worst case scenarios because if I can avoid being negatively surprised, then I can generally stay calm. Usually it's the, oh crap, you know, I can't believe that just happened moment that sends somebody into panic. So risk is more things that can happen than will. It requires imagination. Failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. So you want to imagine all the bad stuff that can happen so as to prevent it. Sort of the idea that to foresee a circumstance is in part to help prevent its occurrence uh, or at least prepare for its occurrence. So you go back to Fukushima, people never expected that the tsunami would breach the walls that protected a nuclear power plant. You know, what will happen next when they rebuild, those walls will be much bigger. Um, and so that's most of the stuff around us. You know, most of the stuff around us exists because somebody suffered a risk. And now we have a system or an architecture or design in place that is directly speaking to the past to say, we're not going to let that risk happen again. So yeah, I like to sort of do positive things by thinking negatively and thinking. About I, know that you, I know that you have um, described yourself as being a pessimist, but actually, I think that you are a paranoid. And I think that the difference is a pessimist thinks that things are going to be bad, but that a, a, a paranoid uh, understands that they can be bad. Yeah, I, uh, paranoid has always had a negative in, uh, 
a connotation of like a psychological affliction. I would say I'm <laughs> cynical, maybe skeptical, and um, yeah, maybe a little paranoid. I'll, I'll concede. Yeah. Josh, we're coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests uh, a book recommendation. But be before I do that, it is my understanding that you are coming out with a book. Is that correct? Uh, no, no, no. That, I, I did that as a joke on uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, but no, no, eventually, yeah, eventually a bunch of people have approached me about some of the ideas and packaging them, but no, no books in the work just yet. Okay. In that case, could you please recommend us one or two books? One of them could be, I know that you are a hard rock metal, huge fan. Uh, so I guess maybe a book recommendation on one of your favorite bands. You know, I think the last thing I read on metal was um, Maynard James Keenan's biography, which uh, I don't remember the name of it, but um, he's the lead singer of Tool. And I think sort of a generally interesting polymathic guy um, who does everything from Brazilian jiu-jitsu to winemaking to being in two or three other bands um, and relatively bright, intellectual, smart guy that also, you know, can scream at a crescendo peak, you know, that gives you chills. So yeah, I would say that I forget the name of the book, but Maynard James Keenan from Tool wrote a, a biography that I found pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, I think also um, Anthony Kiedis and Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, the fact that these guys are alive, given some of the stuff that they did was, you know, sort of fascinating. So yeah, that would be on the rock side. And on the non-rock side? On the non-rock side, on non-fiction, I would go with, um, I, I really am a big fan of Robert Sapolsky's Behave because it's a temporal analysis of why you do what you do, going back to the nanosecond of a moment ago and a minute ago and an hour ago and your hormone levels from a week ago and the shocking or jarring conclusion as you read the book is no matter how intelligent you are, and in fact, maybe the more intelligent you are, you accept its very discomforting premise, which is that we don't have free will. Josh, well, thank you very much for coming to the Bali Perspective podcast and enjoy your holiday. Good to be with you. Thanks. <laughs>